0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 23. Um, If you have a pew Bible, it's page 883. We're going to read verses 1 through 4 and then skip down to verse 32 and read through 49. So Luke 23, 1 through 4, and then 32 through 49. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. And We'll skip down to verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, "'If you're king of the Jews, save yourself.' There was also an inscription over him, "'This is king of the Jews.' One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, "'Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us.' But the other rebuked him, saying, "'Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation?' And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're trying to figure out this
1: summer why believing matters uh, by focusing on the content of Christian faith rather than getting tripped up on the, the act of believing. And today we arguably come to what is the central preoccupation of Christian believing, which is the death of their leader, Jesus. Uh, You really have to work to overstate the importance of this topic to everyday Christians, because there is no other event in the life of Jesus that more consumes Christian imagination than the week of Jesus' death. And I mean that actually very literally. Nine of Matthew's 28 chapters are spent about the week of Jesus' death. Six of Mark's 16 chapters, six of Luke's 24 chapters, and nine of John's 21 chapters, all on this one week, which is an astounding statistic from a literary point of view. If you think about it, Jesus died when he was 33 years old, which means his entire life consisted of about 1,700 weeks. Well, his biographers spend a third of their time on one of those weeks. I mean, whatever biography have you ever read that sort of focuses such lopsided attention on the most humiliating and excruciating and apparently mission-failing ending of their leader's life? By the way, the partial answer to that question is these are not exactly biographies per se. What they are is reflective prophetic literature where these followers are attempting to apply a theological interpretation to the events of Jesus' life. But the conclusion of the last 2,000 years of Christian study have Christians unblushingly talking about this event as the linchpin of Christian believing. One of my favorite commentators on the gospel of uh, Luke, actually, Michael Wilcock, where he says in his commentary, he says, Let no reader imagine that he has begun to understand the Christ of the gospel unless the cross has come to dominate his horizon also. Only when he has sought it and reached it and let it fill his vision as it filled the vision of the Lord and of his evangelist can he say that he is beginning to see what the Christian faith is all about. Look, for a moment, just consider how downright weird this is. Why would the gospel writers give only a couple of chapters to Jesus' miraculous birth, virtually skip his entire childhood and teen years, then sort of hurry through, comparably, the three years of Jesus' life narrative, but all of a sudden slow down the pace of the story, literally to a crawl, while he goes through this seemingly ignominious death? And why would generations of Christians celebrate this very week, Easter, by reciting the most dense portion of the Apostles' Creed by saying, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, he descended into hell. Well, to understand this, what is nothing more than a historical anomaly, we want to consider three things about the death of Jesus of Nazareth. First of all, the reality of his death. We need to see the significance of his death, and then finally, the application of his death. Let's start with that first one. I think it's really interesting that there are only two people that get mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. You ever notice this? One is Mary, Jesus' mother, and the other is Pilate. Doesn't Pilate seem like kind of an unlikely candidate for inclusion in the Creed? I mean, this guy seems like a relatively unimportant character in the story of Jesus dying anyways. Just a wishy-washy, conscious, conscience-stricken really milk toast of a leader who's only mildly bothered by the whole affair, which begs the question, why would generations of Christians keep his name in this professed account of what Christians believe? Well, I think the answer is, well, it lies in this, and that is that Christianity wants to make it very clear that what we profess to be true, we believe, is rooted in real history. That is, Pilate was a governor over a real province during a real period of history. We are not purporting what others would call legends here. These accounts don't read like myths and fables that we knew were written at the time of Jesus living. But of course, people still continue to exist, even Christians, that the historical accuracy of these accounts is just immaterial. Who really cares whether they really happened or not? I don't need that in order to exercise faith now, do I? Well, that's completely false. Christians have to sort of settle on this fact and do not let it go because it makes all the difference in the world. You've kind of heard me in other contexts say things like, look, embracing every other world religion means to embrace the teachings of that system. You know, it's the path that's important. It's the, the insights or the, or the wisdom, the, the five pillars, whatever. But in all those other religions, it's the, it's the teaching that's significant. It's what their leaders said, not what their leaders did that's important. It, was their, it wasn't their actions, it was their teachings. And of course, the upshot about all this that I've been trying to get across to you is that in every other religious system, we are saved by how we live. And which means those are fundamentally moralistic religions. That is, what's really crucial about what they talk, they talk about is their teaching. The Buddha shows you a path, Allah lays down his will. But that, in other words, it's how you live that saves you. And of course, be careful how you condescend to those particular folks who believe that way, because I've always argued that this is the inertia of all of our souls, too. I wish we had more time to deal with it, but I would go so far as to say that. There's a part of us that kind of wants for heaven to go by merit. We just kind of wish that, don't we? Because then if it were, then I could fix myself and take credit for it. But by faith, however, for the Christian, we actually do not believe that our goal in life is to sort of embrace a new, warm, moral code for ourselves. You know what? I've decided that I'm going to act like a Christian now. And suddenly we are one. No, faith, Christian faith, means believing that certain things happened, certain important things, certain cosmically pregnant things happened. The Bible is not a collection of inspiring stories for living or or ancient paths of wisdom that will save you if you just commit a little bit harder to live up to them. You've heard me say the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news, It's proclaiming something significant happened, so significant that it can't be ignored. Christianity is an account of a real space-time event that, if true, means that God himself has landed. He's broken into human history. And that means, among other things, that Christianity, therefore, has the only opportunity to be a religion that is based on and rooted in grace. And not our performance. Let me think about it. Why is it that you are here today? And I'm sure there's a variety of answers to that question. But Christianity says that we are here because we are trying to come to grips with great historical facts. A man rose from the dead for Pete's sakes. Okay, how shall we then live? That's the question. So we begin with the reality of Jesus' death. But secondly, that begs the question, doesn't it? What's the significance of this? You should be more than uh, welcome to ask this question. So what if some Jewish prophet was executed 2,000 years ago? Why would that be interesting to me, if at all? Well, at this point, I think it's very easy to misunderstand because growing up, I realized that many well-meaning Christians got this wrong because it is decidedly not the point of the message of the cross to draw out from us Pity for Jesus, out of which we might want to follow him better than we do. Again, growing up in sort of southern religious Christianity, I was regularly subjected to speakers who would sometimes stand up and deliver lectures on the, the grisly and awful lengths to which Jesus suffered his uh, physical sufferings on the cross. And I don't want to say all those insights are completely worthless. I mean, Jesus' death on the cross was a horribly demeaning way to die, But as horrific as they were, the physical sufferings of Jesus were not the point, as if the severity of his death was somehow uh, what the cross was all about. I remember as a child sort of thinking about other martyrs that I would heard who had died for the faith, thinking, well, I don't know. They died just as much as a gruesome and horrific death as Jesus did. I remember 20 years ago, I think I was assured by almost every single evangelical leader who was operating at that time that Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, was going to launch the greatest revival in the world since the resurrection. And I've come to believe that because it featured so much of the gruesome detail in Jesus' physical suffering, that it was just inevitable that people would misunderstand. The significance of Jesus' death is not to show you how awful it was and to make you pity him. The significance of Jesus' death gets highlighted, actually in a hundred different ways in the Gospels, but in our passage, we actually get a report of two things that happened while Jesus is dying that I think really illustrate the significance of what he's doing up there on the cross. Number one, you see the darkness. And number two, you see the veil. Those are the two things that make it significant. Let's like to look at both of those. First of all, verse 44, we find that there is darkness that comes up over the afternoon while Jesus is dying. Well, darkness is a very powerful biblical image. Remember, when these these disciples are writing these books, they're not writing them in a vacuum. They are drawing upon all kinds of images and types and learning that they would have been schooled in from their birth from the Old Testament. So if you go back to the Old Testament and see whenever darkness shows up in Scripture, it always means so much more than just that the lights went out. Darkness connoted chaos, mayhem, confusion, disorder. If you think about it from Genesis chapter 1, you have the opening verses that say that there was darkness over the face of the deep, among that formlessness and void of the pre-creation. And so from that time on, darkness fell whenever God came in judgment. It's interesting, if you go back to uh, Exodus chapters 7 through 12, about the 10 plagues, You get to see that the last plague that befalls Egypt is a a plague of darkness that followed right behind by the death of the firstborn. Sound familiar to anybody at all? And so it's not too hard to understand why people talk about some of their most fearful experiences in life in terms of darkness. People say things like, and you know, suddenly it seemed like everything just went dark. Or, you know, when we go to movies that are dis- disturb us in some way, we walk away and say, like, I don't know, man, that thing was dark. But again, what's really destructive in us is when darkness enters the realm of the personality, isn't it? Think about this. Your darkness can come in various forms. Darkness can be logical. You ever gotten into endless cycles of logic because you're so determined you're going to figure this out? Darkness can be emotional. This is what depression and anxiety is really about darkness can even be volitional evil choices that i know that i'm making that are at my hand. Jesus said in John 3:19, men love the darkness because their deeds are evil. I would venture to say that there's probably not that many of us here this morning who can't relate to a pervasive creeping darkness coming over us at least at some point in our lives. What is it? It's confusion. It's fear. It's worry. But the question is, where does that come from? Where does that happen? And I believe that Christians are equipped with a very powerful story to understand this universal experience of darkness. And that is that we relate this event of darkness to what happened at Jesus' death. When we look and say that human beings, even when we are not fully aware of it, have been at war waging a war against an undefeatable enemy in God. That is, in our particular life story, we believe that human beings were not born neutral. We are bent, bent on having our way over and above his. And our God is supremely offended at our rebellion, and he demands payments for our wrongdoings. So what that means is, is that all of our psychological, emotional, relational, even social struggles can somehow be traced back to the Bible's statements about human sin. Now, I realize what many of you are saying. You're saying, oh, great, thanks. So in addition to my depression, uh, now I have a nice layer of guilt over that just to make me that much more miserable. So glad I came. Thanks, preacher. But that's actually not my intent to bring it up. I'm simply saying That regardless of any given individual's feelings of responsibility for sins they might have committed, it is the rebellion of man against his God that is the problem behind every other problem. That's it. No matter where you find yourself this morning. Man is out of kilter. He's out of line. He's, He's bent, as it were. We are at odds with our creator. And whether we acknowledge his existence or not, We need to have this breach bridged before any of the hurts that we're presently feeling can be healed. Which is the reason, I think, why Luke includes Jesus saying to his executors, Father, forgive them, for they do not know. They don't know. So this is what the Creed is talking about when it says that he descended into hell, by the way. A small little historical note, I get a lot of questions about this. The Creed is not necessarily saying that Jesus spent three days literally in God's hell during the three days that he had died. That notion, by the way, is a bit of a medieval accretion to the meaning of the creed. Rather, what Orthodox Christianity has always taught is the hell that Jesus endured was what he endured while he was on the cross. His descent into hell was characterized by the darkness that enveloped him while he was up there from the sixth to the ninth hour. And of course, what that means among a host of many other things, is that Jesus knows your darkness. This is the encouragement, isn't it? Jesus can sympathize with you like we talked about last week. Why? Because he has walked through the same path. My guess is for most of you who have suffered from depression and anxiety, you know the power of what it felt like to speak to someone who had been through the same thing, someone who had walked where you had walked, It is a wonderful place to begin to heal when you have this knowledge that Jesus knows. He's not aloof from that. So you get this image of darkness. But the second image that you get that shows us the significance of Jesus' death is something equally enigmatic. Because right before Jesus dies, the veil in the temple splits. These ancient Jews had a a great hall in the midst of their temple, in the back of which they had this little room that was separated by a large veil. And behind that veil, of course, was this sort of piece of golden furniture called the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of the presence of God among his people. What did that mean? Well, it meant at least two things. The first was this. It meant that the fundamental need of any human being is to be in the presence of God. That's where human beings belong back there. To know that we are cosmically in, if you will, with the God of the universe is the meaning of what it means to be a Christian. But Secondly, the veil also meant that you couldn't get there. You needed it, but you couldn't have it. The veil was put up to say that in your present state of rebellion against this God, you can't just go in. In the Old Testament, only the high priest, and even that once a year, could venture beyond the veil to meet with God and ask forgiveness for the sins of himself and for the people. And so Jesus, in verse 45, looks over at the thief next to him and in response to his request to be remembered says, today you will be with me in paradise. So the significance then of Jesus' death is that somehow it secured an access to God that was impossible Prior to Jesus dying, how did it do that? Consider one more small point, and that's this. The great question of the New Testament, the great question we've been entertaining this morning, is how can you have a God who is holy be in any kind of relationship with a people who are decidedly not? Or how about this? Put it in terms of the scene that we have. How can you have darkness and access at the same time? Of course, this is the spotlight on Jesus' teaching about about Jesus dying, what it means in the New Testament. What we believe is that Jesus on the cross was substituting. His death is ringing throughout the halls of Christian praise for at least two millennia later because he took his people's place. Jesus' death was not an example for us about how we ought to sacrifice for one another. That's the slightest application of his death. Nor was his death purely an example of how upper class people oppress the poor. That's not the meaning of his death. His death was a substitutionary sacrifice that brings people to God. There's no other explanation for why generation after generation of Christians would hang a form of brutal execution around their necks as an ornament. Unless it meant that Jesus had taken his people's place. That's what the cross stands for. Which means that we can start to look for some application here as well. What does this mean? What do Christians do with all this? Well, first of all, I think we have to realize that Christianity kind of has a dark side, does it not? It's a bloody religion about the reality of dying and death. And so therefore, first of all, you'll know what to do with Jesus' death when you begin to look at the reaction of the people who first saw it. In verse 48, we find that there were people there who began to beat on their breasts. Why would they do that? Psalm 51 calls that practice an act of contrition. Remember that line from that wonderful psalm, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That Hebrew word for the word contrite refers to an ancient form of execution where a victim would have a a large, heavy, immovable weight placed upon their chest while it slowly crushed the life out of them. You ever felt that way? Well, the point for Jesus' followers was that when these people went away from the cross, they did so repenting. It's instructive, right? You'll know that you've seen the cross when you're finally ready to start humbling yourself and to stop limiting Jesus' extent of his rights over you. Look, if Jesus died in this particular way, then he has the rights to speak in to any part of your life any part but in so many conversations where people just get in knots in knots over their situations in life some of those things are their fault others of them they're complete victims of other people's sins but here's the deal whether you are a victim of your present location in life or whether you are an agent it means that whatever the mess you found yourself in the cross instructs you to start with repentance start by getting humble Start by owning what you can own to those who have hurt you. Secondly, though, we also find in verse 49 that the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, and what did they do? They watched these things. I love that. The main activity of the Christian is to investigate the cross. I don't think I can state it any more simply. The main activity of a Christian is to investigate the cross. The cross is not the stuff for beginners. And then eventually as you get more mature, you move on to the the real discipleship stuff. No, you never advance beyond the cross. We will never fully figure out the full end of the cross. You will never tire, we will never tire of looking into its treasures. They looked into these things, they watched these things, and so should we. Thirdly and finally, I think that Jesus' death on the cross gives his followers An absolutely unique way of dealing with the problem of evil in life. That's the number one thing, isn't it? When you're going through suffering, you spend your prayers with this word, why? God, why is this happening? And I think the solution that that, that Jesus gives us on the cross is utterly unique. There's no other world religion that gives this particular view of this. Again, from commentator Michael Wilcock, he puts it this way. He says, the account which Luke gives us of the last hours of Jesus' earthly life brings a much-needed assurance. Assurance of what, Dr. Wilcock? The most diabolical of all the schemes of Satan was not only countered at every point by a superior plan of God's devising, but it was actually woven into that plan and made to serve its ends. And if that was what God could do with a master plot of hell, listen to this, then there can be no evil which he cannot in the end turn to blessing. That's gorgeous. That's what the cross means about evil. It's not just that he's going to look at the evil and make you feel guilty about it or deny that it was there, but the evil he's actually going to take and make it into something that weaves into his purposes. And This is so amazing how you deal with the understanding of your suffering. If you're like me, you play the blame game. You've got two choices. You can either blame others, which leads to you being angry all the time, which leads you to doing nothing but growing cynical the rest of your life. Or you can blame yourself, which leads you to depression and an unanswerable anxiety that you probably wonder will ever go away in your lifetime. But that's not the Christian faith. (laughs) Christianity comes along and says, no, God is weaving something. He's making something. He's putting things together in a way that right now you can't even imagine It's the most wonderful line spoken by Ivan Karamazov and Dostoevsky's brothers Karamazov, where at the end of his life he begins to reflect on exactly what the purpose was of his particular suffering. And he says this. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. But in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, and for the blo- all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive but even justify what's happened. Do you, what, you see what he's saying? He's saying that what God is going to do is he's going to take all of the pain, all of the evil, even the things that were done by your hand, and he's going to weave it into something at the end. This is completely beyond imagination. He's going to weave it into something that at the end brings about blessing so that when you see it all from his perspective in that day, you will look and wonder and say how glorious he was. That being able to pull off what he did—that's the. Glory. I used to ask students the question this way: I would say, "Look, was the cross of Jesus the best thing that ever happened in life, or was it the worst thing that ever happened in life?" The crazy thing is, the answer to that question is it was both. And since that time, Christians have looked upon their own life's most difficult trials, and they saw through them without guilting themselves to death about it, or actually denying that it really is real, they look through it, and they see God's purposes on the other side, and they can glory even in the midst of their present suffering. And there's there's no other world religion that comes close to that. And that is why, (laughs) on a regular basis, Christians stand up and say that, I believe that Jesus was crucified, dead, and was buried. Do you believe that? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, as we come to the table, we pray that as we partake of your death in this way and remember it, that it would indeed nourish us in all these ways. Father, we didn't even scratch the surface in these last 25 minutes about what this means, but we sure do need your spirit to keep applying it. Would you give us the grace to do so as we partake this morning? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.